Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning, and uh, thank you for bringing the church into this YMCA uh, gymnasium. It is my great privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at, at Crosspoint. My name is Jamie, so I'd love the opportunity to meet you if we've never connected uh, before. I'll be out in the lobby after the, the service, and it's my great joy to uh, get us back into the book of Ecclesiastes. We began a brand new sermon series last week, and so if you're new to Crosspoint as well, it's a good time to be uh, jumping in. I'll kind of catch us up to speed here uh, more in just a moment, but we're looking at this ancient book. It's part of the wisdom literature in the Bible, this book in the, the Old Testament, all right, um, that tells the, the story. It's from this perspective of this preacher or this teacher who's wanting to lay out for us, like, what does life actually look like? What's the point? How do we uh, find any sort of joy and satisfaction when everything sometimes screams at us, like, this is pointless, this is meaningless, this doesn't actually bring anything lasting. And so there's this wrestling and there's this tension, and we're looking at this book or, you know, with the idea here of, you know, helping us make sense of a complex world. And my guess is that you actually feel that reality, that you wish things could be nice and clean and, and simple, and yet the reality is things are complex and things are confusing. And sometimes things that you thought, okay, if I just do this, I'll get this result at the other end, and it didn't quite work out that way. So this morning, we're going to pick back up where we left off last week. We looked at the first 11 verses last week, and so we're going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, then we'll go through the end of chapter 2. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't, there's some paperback ones on the table back there, and you can turn to page 616, all right? The other option that you always have as well is, if you've got a phone with you, to go cpwp.life. And the second card, as you swipe over, says message notes. And so the text will be uh, there for you, space to take notes. Things that are in questions or quotes or things that are up on the screen will be listed there as well. So I encourage you to make use of that, even as a reference after the, the serv service to go back to. And so as you're turning there, I want to talk to you about a, an account of something that, that came up. This was a few years ago. Perhaps you might remember this. This was back in 2015. And there was a, uh, a girl, she was 18 years old, all right, but from the time that she was 15 until 18, for a three-year period of time, she devoted her life, all right, to gathering as big a following as she could, all right, on Instagram, all right? Her hope, her joy, her aspiration was to be what's known as an influencer, all right? And so she began amassing all sorts of followers, and she was... Uh, getting into modeling and all the, these sorts of things. So for a three-year period of time, her name is Asena O'Neill, all right, she grew her following to upwards of 600,000 followers, all right? So just probably slightly more than you have, all right? And so she has this massive following, and then she gets to this point in 2015 where she just gets ready to shut it all down, to walk away. She had a very lucrative deal that, that was going, all right? I mean, there were people that were paying her, like, hey, wear this dress in this particular picture. We'll give you several thousand dollars to do that. Like, she had a good gig going. Like, her career, everything seemed to be, like, anything she had hoped and aspired towards, like, she was actually getting it. And then she just comes to this point. She's like, I'm going to shut this whole thing down and walk away from it. But before she shut down her account, she began to go back and she deleted lots of her photos, but then she also went to the ones that she kind of looked back and said, which one's got the most comments, the most likes? Uh, what are the ones that got the most sort of interaction? And she began to go in systematically and began to change the captions that she had originally posted to what she now wanted to communicate. And here's just one example of what she said. She says this, this was the caption she went back and added to a photo or edited. She says, Please like this photo. I put on makeup, I curled my hair, tight dress, big uncomfortable jewelry. I took over 50 shots until I got the one I thought you might like. 
And then I edited this one selfie for ages on several apps just so I could feel some social approval from you. There is nothing real about this. And within days after posting that, she shut it down and walked away from this seemingly great thing that she had been about constructing. And what she was wrestling with is what the book of Ecclesiastes helps us grapple with and wrestle with that people for thousands of years have been wrestling with as she did here. And you see in this quote, like, what's the point? So if I get a bunch of people to follow me, I get a bunch of people to like this, I get that sort of social approval, like, is all this toil, like, do I actually gain anything? Or is it just some sort of like mirage, this construct? And how is it for you and me? Maybe this isn't your reality, all right? But all of us are trying to build some sort of identity, all right? We're trying to construct something. We're paying attention. We might not use the idea of like, oh, I've got a personal brand. But the reality is like we want people to to know us, to celebrate us, uh, to pat us on the back. And yet it leaves us wanting. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes introduced us to this question last week, and this will be with us throughout this book, all right? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? As you look at this world that we've been given, like, what do we actually gain? What's the point? Does it actually matter? And this theme that we'll see come up over and over again as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you will see this refrain repeated that all is vanity. Maybe your translation says all is meaningless, And the idea here, just as a recap, if you missed last week, is this word vanity, this havel, is this idea of a mist or a vapor or smoke. Like it appears for a moment, then it sort of dissipates, it burns away. You can try and reach for it, but it'll slip through your fingers. And so there is meaning to be found, but the reality is the things that we pursue under the sun, whatever we're trying to build our identity on, it's fleeting, it's elusive, it's, it doesn't actually last. And so when you see this in here, it's God's way of reminding us that life is short and it's fleeting. And what are you actually constructing your life upon? Is it something that will actually matter? And so this is what we get to dive back into this week. And we're going to see here this preacher that we've been introduced to who is going to believe, you know, many believe to be Solomon or at least an account of Solomon's life, a man who lacked for nothing. And we'll see that in the text th- this morning. All right, he goes on this massive crusade, sort of this, uh, this great endeavor to just pursue all the things that he can think of in order to find hope and meaning and value and all of that. And so let me go ahead and read this section. We'll look at beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1 through Verse 11 of chapter 2, it says this. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens you know what, I, I started at the wrong spot. So, thank you. Um, I'm like, wait a minute, this is later. Has the sermon gone by that fast? Some of you were hoping, yes. But anyway, all right, uh, chapter one, verse 12. Here, let's try this again. It's all vanity. All right, here we go. Um, chapter one, verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. And I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. 
and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to make madness and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The chapter two, verse one says this, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, with heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what good for the children of man, what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Verse seven, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. But then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." And so the preacher here, this one who's gathering a group of people, he's teaching them. God is using this man to not only teach people back then, but to teach us here. Because the reality is I think the things, this list of things that he pursues after are the same things that we pursue after. And in and of themselves, these things that he lists out here, uh, for the most part, none of them are even a, a bad thing necessarily. But when you're seeking them to be sort of ultimate, you're asking them to be something they were never intended to be, it's when everything begins to unravel. And that's what you see this man wrestling with. So at the end of the day, like there's this pursuit, there's this desire for happiness. The uh, philosopher Blaise Pascal referred to it this way. He said, all men seek happiness, and this is without exception. Whatever different means they use, they all tend to this end. And the cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both to be happy. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. It's like, at the end of the day, everybody and everywhere and every situation is trying to find some happiness, some joy, some peace. And so what we see here is this man, this preacher says, I set out, all right? And so what is the first thing that we see? He's going to get into like this idea of wisdom. But even at the conclusion of this, there were these words. Did you catch it? He lays out everything that he's pursued. And he said, I considered that all my hands had done and the toil I'd expended in doing it. And behold, it was vanity. It was this hevel. It was fleeting couldn't grab a hold of it. It was a mist. It was a vapor and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's like it was an empty pursuit. But he lays out for us. And I think it's important for us to not just skip over this and be like, okay, it's all vanity and to move on. Like, let's dive into the list a bit because the same things, as I said, that he wrestles with, they're the same things that I wrestle with and that you wrestle with and that every person who has ever walked the planet or will walk the planet wrestles with. And most of the things on this list are even good things. But yet at the end of the day, they won't ultimately satisfy. And so in verses 12 to 18 of chapter 1, he lays out, he says, I've just, 
I was searching for wisdom, all right? Maybe you think about it this, like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to college, all right? I'm gonna go to the university. I'm gonna gather some knowledge. I'm gonna spend time learning. I'm gonna take this online class. Or I'm gonna better myself in some way. Like, maybe you know the story of Solomon because when he says here later in this passage, I have acquired great wisdom, he wasn't lying, all right? This is a true statement about this preacher, Right, as this reference back to the life of Solomon, maybe you remember this story, is he became king as a very young man. All right? He's overwhelmed by the prospect of ruling this kingdom. His father had been David, and now it was up to him. And maybe you remember this account. It's in 1 Kings chapter 3. Here's what Solomon asked for. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. He says, and now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. This is his perspective. He's like starting to be overwhelmed by it. And he says this, I do not know how to go out or to come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? What an amazing response. What wisdom was even there to ask for more wisdom? to discern that what he had been given, he wasn't an owner, he was a steward, he's been given, this is God's people, all right, this is God's kingdom, and yet he has a role to play, so everything seems to be going well. We know that it doesn't eventually stay there for this king, but in this moment, he asks, he's like, I don't know what to do, and of all the things that he could have asked for, right, he asks for wisdom. And so a few verses later, we get these words, behold, I now, this is God's words back to him, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and a discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And we see this lived out in the book of Ecclesiastes, that he was granted all wisdom. So when he says these words there, that he said, I have acquired great wisdom, like, He's not lying. This is true. And yet, did you notice, look at verse 18. For in much wisdom, though, is much vexation. It's this idea here of a deep sorrow and also like an anger and frustration sort of commingling together. And some of you are like, oh, I don't know what it's like to be sad and angry at the same time. And some of you are like, ah, that's, that's my reality, right? And he experiences this vexation. And then he says this, and he who increases knowledge actually increases sorrow. I had a professor in seminary, and he loved to drop this sort of line um, as he was giving us all sorts of information, more wisdom than we could possibly handle, more um, things to study that would be up on, on the exam. But then he also would make sure we knew this, and he would always say, facts up, fuzz up. Well, what do you mean by that? I think it's about this chapter 1, verse 18. It's this idea of like the more you inquire, uh, acquire the knowledge, it's not that it's bad, but when the facts increase, right, when your knowledge is increasing, doesn't it get fuzzier sometimes? You're like, you set out to accomplish some simple task. You're like, I'll Google it for a moment. And then you realize, wow, 
There are lots of different takes on this. There's lots of different ways to go about this. What might be the, the best way to do this? And some of you are very decisive and like, I can just narrow it down. I go with the one that was at the top of the list. And some of us are like, let me go to page six, seven of the search results and just see, because I got to go through every last one, right? Facts up, fuzz up. And with it can come a sorrow and there's an, a feeling of being overwhelmed. And so he looks at it and he's just like, at the end of the day, wisdom in and of itself is a good thing. He's going to talk about that later in chapter two but it's not ultimate. So then he moves on. He's like, okay, well, wisdom can't ultimately satisfy. And so he begins to put this sort of list out there. He's like, okay, well, I'm gonna go after pleasure then. So look at chapter two, verse one. So I said in my heart, come now, I will test you. He's like, I'm gonna test out life with pleasure. And he begins then in a moment to sort of unpack what all those things were, but he just starts out with like, this is what I'm going to pursue. Enjoy yourself. But he says very quickly, but behold, this also was vanity. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. So he's like, okay, well, maybe if it's not pleasure. Then he, he says laughter, verse 2. So he said, I said of laughter, though, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? So you imagine maybe that this person sort of they, they get out of whatever class they've taken or the, they've just gotten their degree, all right? But now they're out in the world and they're just like, okay, I'm going to pursue pleasure. But that wasn't, that didn't last. That didn't satisfy Maybe it's like, can I just enjoy some laughter? I'm all for laughter. The Bible is actually all for laughter, but it's not ultimate. Like, you know this, right? Like, we experienced this even this past Friday as a family, as my kids were watching this old show that they, they like, liked when, when they referred to themselves as little kids, right, like so long ago, right? And so they were watching this show and just laughing hysterically and so engaged. And there was great laughter and joy, and it was just this Got a great moment in the house on Friday night, but you know what the reality is? Like, it's fleeting. They didn't carry all the way through it to Saturday. It didn't mean that there was no tension or anything. Like, it's just this thing, and it's a good gift, but it doesn't ultimately satisfy. So go watch your favorite comedian or watch your favorite sitcom, right? Or be able to quote every line from friends or whatever it is that you want to do, right? Like, yes and amen to all of that, but at the end of the day, it doesn't satisfy. So then he, he moves on and he's like, okay, let me talk about wine, all right? And so he's like, all right, so I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with, with wisdom. So I think he's even saying there, hey, I'm not like off just like taking in way too much, but he's also like, well, let me take in some, some wine. Let me have some, a drink. The Bible's not anti this. Psalm 104 verse 15 speaks of the Lord has given wine to gladden the heart of men. Some of you are like, Cinco de Mayo, I'm gonna get that margarita today, whatever it is, right? And you could say yes and amen to that, and yet, at the end of the day, it won't ultimately satisfy. And so enjoy it as a good gift in moderation, but realize it's fleeting, it's vanity. So he's looked at wisdom, he's looked at pleasure, he's looked at laughter, some comedy, some comic relief. He's like, I'm having a good glass of, of wine. Right? We even know from this passage that he went and created all these vineyards, so he had ample supply of it. But at the end of the day, it's not enough. And so he's like, okay, i got to go on to building projects. So look at verse 4, all right? He says, he says these words, I made great works, I built houses, and I planted vineyards for myself. One of the things I want you to see in this as well is you notice how often in these verses, I did this, I built, I pursued, I acquired, I did this. You wonder why it leaves him wanting because it's a bit of a worship song to himself. 
And I can critique that from afar thousands of years later, but the reality is I do this same thing. My disposition is look what I have done. Look what I'm trying to do. Look what I'm trying to acquire. And the reality is, is we end up in this kind of spot of like living for self, that self is the dominant narrative. And the Bible is here graciously in a very confrontational way to say, that's not going to cut it. That will not satisfy. But he has this moment, he's like, oh, maybe if I just build some houses. Now, he wasn't homeless at the time, right? It wasn't like he didn't have a house. He starts just, oh, maybe I need more of what I already have, thinking that it will satisfy. And so he builds these exquisite, extravagant homes. There's nothing wrong with having a beautiful home, all right? But if you're looking for it to satisfy, it won't. Made me think of uh, some, a couple times in our family, we've gone um, to a place called Cumberland Island. I don't know if you've ever been there. As you cross from Florida into to Georgia, just across the, the border there, um, there's this national park. All right? uh, you can take this ferry out to it. We attempted to kayak one time. That did not go so well. It's a story for another time. All right? um, but eventually we're like, oh, okay, the National Park Service runs a ferry. We'll go do that. That's safer. Okay? Um, and so we take that out there, and you can hike around this particular island, and it's beautiful. And one of the things you learn about the history is that there were very, very wealthy families families, right? There's this really amazing history down through from like, you know, from the Revolutionary War time, and then you eventually get up into the late 1800s, and the Carnegie family went and began building these amazing homes. And here's one that's on the island, or this is what it at least used to look like, called Dungeness. And this was built there on the island. To this day, you can go and see it, but it doesn't look like this anymore. The Great Depression hit, and so the families just, they just left. They literally left everything that was there on the island. You go and you see one spot just outside of, kind of off to the side yard of this building there, that there's just this row of cars that have all begun to kind of sink down in the, in the ground as they're rusting and kind of disintegrating. They just up and left everything. They had horses, these beautiful horses, and they just left them. To this day, you go like hike through the, you know, the, the woods and you end up out on the beach on the Atlantic side there and you will literally see horses running down the beach. All right, They're just wild. And so there's amazing things that they did on this pretty wild spot. All right? Cultivation, expansion, like it's, it's Genesis 1 and 2 kind of stuff. It's like, all right, let's take the raw materials of the world. Let's build something beautiful. Yes and amen to all of that. But if you go there today, this is what Dungeness looks like. Just the few remains of it. That once it was abandoned, eventually it caught fire. And this is what remains. So you can walk through that and you kind of reminisce. And you can see some of the old photographs. But it's not lasting. It's fleeting. So work on your house. Enjoy it. All right? Seek to, if you're trying to like, I want to purchase a house. Great. You can pursue that. But also know like it doesn't ultimately satisfy. So do the things. All right? Have the Pinterest project. Get engaged in all, all that stuff. Paint your walls. Do all that. But just know this. Right? Like it's not ultimate. And someday you might move, and somebody else might move in, and they might just tear the whole thing down. The first house we lived in here in Winter Park, we, we rented it for a year when we moved back to the area. It was this little, you know, 900 square foot, two bedroom, one bath house, just a couple blocks from here. And we rented that, and we loved it. It was beautiful. All right. Um, and then a few years later, after I mean, we had moved out, like they tore it down and they built this huge house. There's nothing wrong with that, but a little bit of me is like, how dare they? I'm like, I didn't even own it, right? Um, and it's just things are fleeting so then he moves on he's like okay well if it's not houses what about this it must be nature all right and so he i mean just look at this all right some of you would like to work in the yard this will impress you all right he says i planted vineyards for myself then i made garden myself gardens 
and parks, all right? Some of you are like, I got my little box garden on the side of the house. Yeah, that, he built a whole park, all right? Um, and parks, plural, and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools then from which to water the forest of growing trees. There's no small project, all right? Every month, the HOA, they came around and they, they, he got the you know, best yard of the month, like every month. So he gives himself this cultivation. Like it's, it's a beautiful thing and yet it doesn't last. Because guess what was still in those gardens? There were weeds, there, this, there, was, there were things that were difficult about it. The curse didn't somehow just magically go away. And he begins to talk about power and wealth. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of the kings in provinces. She begins to speak of like, all right, I had all these people to actually serve me. He had, like, he was not only just because he was the king, but just his wealth allowed him to even own other people and to be like, you're here at my beck and call. You're here to, to serve me. There's incredible amounts of power, incredible amounts of wealth, the amount of livestock that they had. If you go and read in other sections of the Old Testament, it even describes like what it took every day for him to actually like feed all of his staff and all, all of that, like massive, massive amounts of livestock slaughtered every day for the best, the choicest of meats but the power and wealth. And we look at our day and age, and we continue to pursue many of the same things, thinking it will satisfy. With the exception here, all right, maybe you're like, okay, well, the, the one thing that's on here is like, okay, slaves, all right, and like, thank God that that's not the reality here anymore, and yet there still can be this desire, isn't there, for, for power and influence, and people like, I just wanna be able to tell them what to do. And this pursuit of money, everything in this list so far are all things that we pursue. The Bible is incredibly timely, incredibly relevant. Maybe you know the story of one of the, perhaps one of the richest men who've ever lived, John D. Rockefeller, who was asked by a reporter, like, how much money is enough? And his response, as you may be familiar with, just a little bit more. The man who seemingly had everything was still itching for, I need a little bit more. What's the next thing to accomplish? What's the, the next deal to close? What's the next thing that I can do to make a little bit more money? He explores the arts. It says here in verse 8, I also gather for myself, he says, silver and gold, treasures of kings and provinces. He says, and then I got singers, both men and women. He's like, all right, so I might need to have some joy in this world. Like, I need people to play some music and sing some songs. And yes and amen to all of that. All right, I'm so thankful there are people that have those abilities. All right, it speaks and encourages my soul. Now, not with me singing, all right. All right, true, true story, all right? Um, now, he's not here this morning, but I'm still gonna tell the, the story. It's like, my dad referenced recently, he's like, hey, you talk about like how you can't sing and your fear is like that your mic would actually be left on like while you're singing. And he's like, I just kind of thought you were just kind of, you know, being hyperbolic. And he's like, and then I walked past you one Sunday while you were singing. He's like, oh yeah, you're really bad, all right? Um, and I'm like, thanks, dad, I just feel the love. All right, but the reality is, hey, music is a beautiful thing by people that know what they're doing, right? And it, even if you don't, like it is there, it's a gift from the Lord. It stirs our souls, it does something. And so he pursues that, it's a good pursuit, but it's not ultimately lasting. And then at the end of verse eight, we get these words. He says, and I had many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. You get this preacher 
this teacher, this one who says, look at everything that I pursued. And then at the end of the day, he's like, okay, well, maybe I can find it through sexual gratification. Some of you know the story of Solomon, all right? Not only did he possess a lot of wisdom, he had a lot of wealth, all right? Here's what 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3 tells us. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Turned his heart away from the Lord, got him, were part of, I believe, even what the enemy would use, a good gift that the Lord has given to pervert that, to say, well, if you just have this. And he had a thousand women, had this massive harem. I mean, think about this for a moment. It's like you can't even wrap your mind around it, and yet it didn't satisfy. And his heart was turned away. And so he just lays this out. I love the way C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and they want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Did you catch that line in there where it says they never quite keep their promise? So everything that Solomon, everything that the preacher's just gone through, everything that you and I do, well, wisdom is gonna keep its promise to be ultimate. It doesn't. What about pleasure? What about humor? What about a, a good drink? What about this house project that we're going to do or working on the yard or whatever it is? They make promises like if you just have this, it's not even just to keep up with people anymore, to the proverbial Jones, it's like, I gotta surpass them. I've gotta be better than them. Then my heart will really be satisfied. And so Lewis continues, he says, and now, just so you know, he's, I'm not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am actually speaking of the best possible ones. There was something that he says we have grasped at. This is the idea of Hevel. And that moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. Honest words spoken by this man here. Honest words that we get in the book of Ecclesiastes. Honest words that are meant to showcase for us that in the midst of all of this, this vanity, this pursuit, even this heaviness that we would sort of sit in this for a moment, all right? There's an even bigger problem, though, that's been sort of lurking in the shadows. That there's this reality that the preacher is confronted with. And so look with me at verses 12 to 23, what I started to read a short while ago, all right, about this problem that we can't avoid. What is lurking in the shadows is the reality of death. And rather than being something that it's like, oh, I don't want to talk about that, we're encouraged to consider this because there's some good that can actually come of it. So beginning in verse 12, he talks again about like his pursuit, even more so of wisdom, but look how he, what he begins to sort of unpack for us, beginning in verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than folly, as there is more gain in light than darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So, so far, so good. Like, yeah, wisdom is actually a good thing. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. What's he talking about? They're all going to die. So you can be wise, you can be a fool. At the end of the day, you're going to die. 
Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of, the wise, for of the wise as of the fool, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. It's like I, despairing of this. He's like, the brokenness, this doesn't make any sense. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. And then beginning in verse 18, he says some similar things where he begins to just say, like, so everything, all this toil, all of this effort, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and I gave up my heart to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who is toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Like I did the work, I had wisdom, I had IQ and EQ, I had everything working together and now this moron gets everything after I die. Like what in the world, how do you make sense of that? This also is vanity and a great evil. Verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. There's that word again. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Have you been there? Your heart can't rest. There's this ongoing, this sort of restlessness. Maybe it interrupts your actual physical sleep. Maybe it just makes you anxious throughout the day. Like there's this, reality here we're constantly giving ourselves over to these pursuits thinking that they will satisfy and what God in his grace is doing for us is saying hey I need you to see this and so he says in verse 14 again the wise person has eyes in his head but the fool walks in darkness yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them we're all going to die he says in verse 16 for, I, for of the wise as of the fool there's no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool and nobody remembers and nobody even really cares He's like, this is the story. This is where your story's heading and my story's heading, all right? He says in verses 20 to 21, so I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. You see this sort of the despair. Now, in this, there's a lot of grace, that God is wanting to wake us up and say, listen, this is ultimately where things are heading, and I need you to be aware of that, cognizant of that, to not try and distract yourself, be busy with so many things so you never think about this. I need you to contemplate this reality because it'll inform how you live today. If you wanna have joy and hope and some peace, you've got to deal with this reality. I don't know how many of you have seen, uh, there's an old movie with Robin Williams called Dead Poet Society, all right? And it's one of my all-time favorites. I would commend it to you. And there's this English teacher that, that shows up, Mr. Keating, all right? And he gathers, it's this, it's this you know, very academic, this, this prep school, this all-boys school. And so one of his first days of class, he has the kids all file out, all these young boys, has them file out of their no, high school, these young men file out, and they go and they begin to look at some of the trophy cases that line the halls. 
And he asked them to really see and appear. And there's this particular scene where he's just asking them to look at the photographs, the black and white photographs that are there amongst the trophies and the plaques and all of this. And he's like, look into their eyes. And he begins to describe these young men from decades past as they were full of life and energy and they had dreams and goals and this vitality. And he's like, now they are all food for worms. And in this very interesting sort of inspirational yet depressing speech, right, he's like, I need you to consider this. Because what he lays before them is this phrase that will show up throughout the the particular film, this Latin phrase. He begins to tell them carpe diem is this idea of seize the day. That we have to pay attention. And he's like, you, unless you confront the reality of your death, you won't actually be able to seize the day. You won't be able to actually enjoy these things. But I think we even need to go a step further because the idea even of seizing the day sounds like it's up to you and me that there are all these things out there and we got to go, I'm going to claim this, I'm going to grab this, I'm going to strategize, I'm going to get this, I'm going to pursue this, all right? But what the writer is getting at here is this reality that you can actually only seize what you, seize what you have received. Everything that we have is a good gift. And so, yes, there's this problem, there's this major problem that's lurking in the shadows that becomes a reality. Everybody is going to die. And when we become aware of that, it sort of jolts us into this moment of like, okay, like, what do I do with the time that's been given to me? But not just a pursuit of like, I've got to do it, but rather you and I are the recipient. You're an achiever, or you're not an achiever, you're a receiver. And yet our culture says you got to achieve, you got to do it. You've actually got to go out and seize You can only seize what you have received, that everything is a gift. And so this is where we'll close. Look at verses 24 to 26. God wants us to see that he has given us good gifts to enjoy, that there actually is hope to be found in here. Amidst all the darkness, even looking at this like, wow, we're contemplating death. But it's so that we might actually see what the Lord has given to us. In verse 24 it says, so there is nothing better for a person than than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So when we contemplate this, here's the deal. The reality is, it shifts our perspective. And there's a perspective that you need, a perspective that I need to live this life under the sun where he says these words, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toilet. At first it seems very materialistic, like, whoa, wait a minute, that's all I'm supposed to do. But look at the language again. This also I saw. His perspective is beginning to shift. He's beginning to say, yes, I toiled for these things. I pursued these things. Ultimately there's death. I don't know what to do with, with that. And it's not that there's not vanity and meaninglessness in this world, but he's saying, but they're also in the midst of this, there's ways to have joy. When I see, when his perspective shifts, when he says, I saw it's from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? It's a way of thinking about it this, that the things that he pursued from wisdom to housing projects, to pleasure, to comedy, to a good drink, to friendships, to working in the yard, whatever it happens to be, do you see all of those things as good gifts from the Lord? And then to see that that has been given to you and to trace it back to the giver. To not let it terminate on itself, to not be like, okay, well, this this is great and this is all, all there, but rather to see it points you to a deeper reality. 
Zach Eswine in his book, Recovering Eden, says this, In sum, death has pointed its headlights at us and started its engine. Therefore, we must learn from God how to enjoy what he has given us, knowing that none of it can save or satisfy us. Trying to turn a grapefruit into a baseball doesn't dismiss the value of the grapefruit, but it makes for a disappointing baseball game. Can we acknowledge that, right? If we want to enjoy the fruit's value, we have to treat it according to the use God gave it and resist trying to use it for things it was not made for. A grapefruit cannot give us the thrill of a home run, but it can make a breakfast pleasant. He's saying, like, look it, that's a good gift. The things that you have in this world, the things that I have, the material things, they're good gifts. But don't try and make them into something they're not. They're not there to save you. They're not there to provide ultimate meaning. Those things will actually, like, if you believe that, if you believe this job, if you believe having this person's love or affection, if you believe being able to go on this trip, if you believe having X amount of money, whatever, will save you, it won't. In fact, it'll end up crushing you because they'll, like Rockefeller said, there's never enough. We can get caught up in these pursuits or we can recognize that everything is from the hand of God. So are you seeing, I want you to contemplate this and celebrating the, the hand of God, that everything that you have is an opportunity to give him thanks for it, to worship him, to not worship that thing, to not ask it to be your savior, but to allow it to point you to a good and gracious God. As James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You have a good heavenly father who loves to give good gifts. And so he's given work and he's given food and he, he's given recreation, he's given relationships, he's given all these things as good gifts. And yet, even those things are meant to take us further, right? And a verse that you probably have, even if you're not super familiar with Christianity, you at least have heard this, this verse. You've seen it up at football stadiums, right? All these things, John 3, 16. But look at this. It's meant to ultimately point us, for God so what? For God so loved the world that he gave. Think about this gift, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Something that's not Havel, something that's not fleeting, something that is actually permanent and forever satisfying. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Instead of coming to condemn the world, Jesus came to be condemned. That he was condemned in your place and in my place. For all the ways we've taken all the good things of life, made them ultimate, think that that's what we're going to build an identity on. And we've rebelled against our king. We've not seen him as good and gracious. We've not chosen to worship him. We've said, no, I'm going to make it about me. I built, I labored, I did this. Look at me, praise me, let me be God. And yet the God of the universe says, I will send my one and only son to die in your place. To suffer the condemnation that you should have suffered. And instead, we got his righteousness. What a gift that we have. Ecclesiastes is showing us this. And so do this this week. Like, as you enjoy a meal or a conversation, thank the giver of all good gifts. And then allow your heart then to press in even further and to say, thank you for the ultimate gift that you sent your son, that I don't stand condemned. I'm not in this place of judgment. Because as it actually speaks of here at the end, it says, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering. But right before that it says, to the one who pleases God has given wisdom and knowledge. Here's the reality. None of us can please God, but there was the son who perfectly pleased him, who was perfectly obedient. And because he did that, you now get this new reality to live in. I get that new reality. So I'm going to close in prayer. I want to give you some time 
let's spend some time in response, in prayer, confessing to the Lord. There's got to be something on that list that you give time, energy, that I give time and energy and effort thinking it will satisfy. Maybe there's things that weren't on the list. We're like, man, confess that. It's not trivial. It's not insignificant. It put Jesus on the cross. And then celebrate. Allow your heart for a moment. Ask the Spirit to remind you to celebrate the promises that you are no longer in the spot of condemnation, that Jesus was condemned in your place, that Jesus died for you. And then out of that, begin to think through, okay, what does your life actually look like? How can you commit to worshiping God, to seeing and celebrating the hand that gives all good things, the one who gave the ultimate gift in giving us his son? So let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this text. It is weighty. There's a, it has just this heaviness to it. And yet it has been given so that we might actually experience joy, that we might be confronted with the reality of our sin, of our, of our pursuits, our, our, our rebellion against you, and yet how you graciously continue to give good gifts and how you invite us to worship you. You make it possible through the life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus. And so I pray now, Holy Spirit, would you lead us in this time? Would you, as we pray, as we quiet our hearts, as we reflect on these things, Would you lead us in a time of confession and repentance? Would you remind us of the truth of the gospel that we might celebrate who we are in you? God, I would pray for any here this morning that have not trusted in you, that today would be the day that they confess, that they repent, that they turn away from all of the vanity of life and seek to pursue you. And God, would you make us a people that are committed to following after you, to finding joy in you, that are willing to contemplate these things, not to earn anything, but simply just in response to the love that we have been shown, the way you've lavished your grace upon us. And so, God, I pray that you would get your glory as we pray, as we spend this time in the remainder of the service, that we as your people would get a great joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.